podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have two parts for you on today's episode, which is brought to you in part by Betstamp, the world's first verified buy-sell marketplace for sports betting picks. In part one, I'll review our final match of 2022, which was against Udinese on Saturday. And in part two, I'll provide some information on the upcoming international break, the World Cup, and Napoli's new Christmas kit that everyone seems to be so offended by. So let's begin with the match against Udinese on Saturday. As I'm sure you're already aware, Napoli won 3-2 on goals from Viktor Osimhen, Piotr Zielinski, and Elif Elmas. Two substitutes, Ilya Nestorovsky and Lazar Samardzic, scored the goals for Udinese. It was a match that seemed to be in the bag when Elif Elmas scored Napoli's third goal in the 58th minute, but then we conceded twice in three minutes to make for a very stressful end to the match. Nevertheless, we hardly could have hoped for or expected a better start to the 2022-23 campaign. We won 13 out of 15 matches. The two matches we didn't win were draws, so we're undefeated in Serie A with 41 out of a possible 45 points earned. The two draws were fairly early in the season, but since then, we've won 11 consecutive matches in Serie A, which is a club record. Of course, we also topped our group in the Champions League with 5 wins and 1 loss. That loss to Liverpool was our only loss in any competition this season, and if you had to pick a match to lose, that would be the one. The objective of that match was not to lose by more than 3 goals, any other result, a win, a draw, or a loss by fewer than 3 goals, would have meant that we would win the group, and that is exactly what we did. We'll cover all of that in this review, and we'll revisit our 3 keys to the match, but first, let's review the starting lineups. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti made 5 changes to the squad that he fielded in the win over Empoli, but it was exactly the starting 11 that we were expecting. We lined up in our usual 4-3-3 formation with Alex Meret in goal. Juan Jesus returned to the starting 11 to play over Leo Ostegaard, who played against Empoli. That was the change we were expecting, simply because Ostegaard has not played in consecutive matches at any point this season. Kim Min-Jae lined up on the right side of the centre-back pairing. Matthias Oliveira also returned to the starting 11 to play at left-back. He was replaced by Mario Rui at halftime, which led some to speculate that perhaps Oliveira picked up an injury in the first half. However, Spalletti confirmed after the match that it was a tactical change, not an injury. And of course, Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right back. Not surprisingly, Spalletti went with his strongest midfield given that this was the last game before the break. He played Stanislav Lobotka as the regista with Piotr Zielinski to his left and Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa to his right. That relegated Tangi Ndombele to the bench. 
Finally, Spalletti changed both of his wingers for this match, with Chavicha Kvaratskhelia still suffering from back pain. Elif Elmas started on the left wing over Giacomo Raspadori, who struggled a little bit in the match against Empoli, and Chucky Lozano returned to the starting lineup to play over Matteo Politano, while Victor Osimhen started again at striker. For Udinese, Andreas Sotil made only one change to my predicted starting 11, which I was quite proud of considering how many injuries Udinese have at the moment. He lined up in a 3-5-2 formation with Marco Silvestri in goal. With Adam Messina, Rodrigo Becao, and Bram Neutink all hurt, Sotil started a back three of Nahuel Perez, Jakab Iol, and Enzo Ebos. Destiny Udoji was also out injured, so Ricardo Pereira shifted over to start at left wing back, and Kingsley Ahizabwe started at right wing back. Sandy Lovrich played in the center of the midfield with Wallace to his left and Tolge Arslan to his right. Finally, Gerard Delofeu and Beto started together up top. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's revisit our three keys to the match. My first key to the match was that we needed to play quicker, and I'm going to say that we achieved this goal. When I talked about this in our preview, I referred to how we tend to play slower when we have Tangi and Dombala in the starting lineup. Zielinski returned to the starting lineup, and naturally we played quicker, which is not a knock on Ndombele, it's more of a compliment to Zielinski. I'll come back to the counterattack in a moment. But the goal that Zielinski scored started with Zilu himself playing a quick outlet pass to Osimen and then joining the attack. Now, not that I necessarily prefer Elmas over Raspadori on the left wing, but Elmas is quicker than Raspadori, and of course Lozano on the right wing is certainly quicker than Politano. Elmas proved to be the correct choice once again. After scoring the match winner against Atalanta, he, as it turned out, scored the match winner in this match. He also assisted on the opening goal of the match with a gorgeous cross to Osimen in the area. The goal really came out of nothing. It started with Napoli pressing Udinese to clear the ball straight back to us. Shout out to Angisa not only for the press on this play, but for his play throughout the match. Even having just recently returned from a muscle injury, he still played the full 90 minutes and he showed no signs of slowing down during the match. For Osimen. I don't know what more you can say about this guy. That was his seventh goal in six matches since he returned from his muscle injury. He also picked up an assist and drew a penalty during that time. He now has 10 goals and two assists in all competitions this season. And once again, he showed that he can beat defenders in a variety of different ways. Even his headers vary from goal to goal. That was his second goal in a row from the header. The first was against Atalanta, where he showed what great body control he has, whereas this one was a delicate glance of the ball into the bottom corner. My second key to the match was that we needed to stop Gerard Delofeu, which turned out to be a non-issue. Delofeu was forced to leave the match with what appeared to, at that moment, be a serious injury. He was in tears as he walked off the pitch. Fortunately, Delofeu announced on Instagram that while he feared the worst, the injury was nothing serious. He said some of the knee structure is affected by the sprain. He also thanked the fans at the Maradona who applauded him as he walked off the pitch. He said the applause from the Stadio Maradona crowd was something wonderful and a gesture of great respect. Now, I never want to see a player get hurt even if it's an opponent. 
But I think we definitely benefited from Delofeo not being able to play most of this match. For the short period that he did play, he looked his usual dangerous self. He was involved in a couple of dangerous looking Udinese attacks in the early stages of the match. And he had what was probably Udinese's best chance of the first half. That was that clever little flick in front of the goal where Meret was able to get down quickly and keep the shot out. So we achieved that goal somewhat by default. My final key to the match was that we had to watch out for the counter-attack and we definitely achieved this goal. Even though we conceded two goals in the match, neither of them were from the counter-attack. The first was from a corner kick where we cleared the danger but we gave the ball right back to Udinese. I thought Isaac Success, who replaced Elofeo after the injury, made a lovely layoff with his chest and Ilya Nestorovsky did really well to volley the ball into the ground and passed Meret. I don't think there was necessarily anyone to blame in particular for the goal. More than anything, I thought Udinese earned the goal, and it was certainly deserved. I thought we looked a little bit complacent after we scored our third, which I suppose is understandable, but if there's one thing you don't want to do against Udinese, it's let your guard down. No Serie A team has earned more points after trailing than Udinese, and you could see why. After falling behind by 3, they scored twice in 3 minutes and really made a sweat for the final 10 minutes of this match. The second goal was the result of two things, an extremely rare mistake by Kim Min-jae and a fantastic strike by Samardzic. Kim further endeared himself amongst his teammates and Napoli fans alike by publicly apologizing for the mistake with a post on Instagram. He said, I would like to express my deepest apology to my teammates and the fans. We could have only won this because of my teammates. Mistakes will only make me stronger. Next time I will help the team better. Forza Napoli sempre. I thought that was really big of Kim. It's not uncommon for players to apologize for mistakes or for clubs to apologize for poor performances, but generally speaking, you only get these apologies after you don't get a good result. You almost never get an apology from a player or a club after the team wins, which I think says a lot about the character and the humility of Kim Min-jae. But again, that goal was not conceded on the counterattack. In fact, we were the more dangerous side on the counterattack, scoring two out of our three goals on the break. I touched on the first one already, where Zielinski started the break with an outlet pass to Osimen at midfield. Even though Osimen is a bit lanky and somewhat awkward looking, he showed that he can still play with the ball at his feet, letting it roll past himself before outmuscling Ebos to keep the ball, and then he played that great little backheel pass to Lozano. Credit to Lozano who must have called for the ball, otherwise, I'm not sure that Osimen would have known that Chucky was there. Lozano just barely got the pass past the head of Perez, but there was still plenty of work for Zielinski to do. I thought he did brilliantly first to take the ball down, second to take a touch to steady himself for the shot, and third to curl the shot around the outstretched arms of Marco Silvestri. That was already Zielinski's sixth goal in all competitions this season to go along with seven assists. Just to put that into perspective, last season Zielinski scored eight goals and five assists in all competitions, so he's already matched his total goal production from all of last season. The second goal we scored on the counter-attack was our third goal of this match. It started with Juan Jesus winning a tackle to turn the ball over. 
Going back to our first key to the match, Zielinski dropped to touch the ball to Lobotka and he immediately played it forward to Angisa. So again, we played quickly and just like that, we were off to the races. I talked about Elmas earlier. One thing we probably take for granted with him because he doesn't play a whole lot is his incredible stamina. He burst forward to join the attack and because of the run by Victor Osiman towards the right side of the pitch, which pulled the entire Udinese backline with him, Elmas had acres of space to run into. The other characteristic we probably take for granted is Elmas's footwork, which is easy to forget about when he's playing behind a player like Varaschelia, but Elmas reminded us of his skill first with the way he cut in on Biol, who had a difficult match between the first goal and this one, and then with the way he dragged the ball in front of himself to set up that shot towards the near post. So not only did we not concede on the counterattack, we also scored two goals of our own on the break. Therefore, we achieved all three of our keys to the match, which means the win was not at all a surprising result. Now, I do have a few additional thoughts on how this match ended, but I'm going to save that for part two when I talk about the international break. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Betstamp. With the Betstamp app, you can compare betting lines across multiple different sportsbooks in your region, which is the only way to get an edge in online sports betting. You can also buy and sell picks from verified accounts, and best of all, the app is free. There are no fees, no royalties, and no commissions. Just download the Betstamp app, and be sure to use referral code NAPOLI when you create your account. Okay, there are two more things that I want to quickly chat about from the Udinese match. The first is that we almost blew this match in the final 10 minutes. I think that was a result of two things. As I mentioned in part one, it was partly due to complacency having jumped out to a three-goal lead, but the other reason is something I've been harping on over the last few episodes, which is that we started to tire out. We've now played 21 matches in all competitions since the start of the season on August 15th, and this match was on November 12th, so that's a three-month period. And while Spalletti has done a fantastic job of rotating his squad, there are a few players he's relied on fairly heavily. I won't even include Alex Meret and Giovanni Di Lorenzo amongst the overused players because Meret is a goalkeeper and Di Lorenzo is a robot, but there are three players we've relied on a little too much in my opinion. One is Kim Min-jae, who played the full 90 minutes in 20 out of the 21 matches this season. He also played the full 90 minutes in both of South Korea's international friendlies back in September. The only match he didn't play against was Spezia, where he got a rest. Of course, we needed him to play more after Rachmani got hurt, because I don't think we could have relied on a back two of Leo Ostegaard and Juan Jesus. Rachmani missed nine matches in all competitions with that thigh injury, so Kim clocked a lot of minutes, 1,800 in total, which is third most on the team behind Meret and Di Lorenzo, and perhaps that's why he had that error against Udinese. Playing that many minutes and that many matches is not only physically exhausting, it's also mentally exhausting. Fortunately, Rachmani is expected to return after the World Cup break, so I imagine Kim would get some additional time off, maybe not right away, because everyone should be well rested in January. But as the season gets busy again with the start of the Coppa Italia and the return of the Champions League, I think that's when we'll see Kim get the occasional rest. 
Next on the list is Stanislav Lobotka. He is one of the few irreplaceable players in this squad. We have Diego Deme who plays the same position, but even after Deme recovered from the injury he suffered in training, he hasn't been able to get into the starting 11 because Lobotka has become so important for how Spalletti wants his team to play. Lobotka has appeared in every single Napoli match this season, but he's played slightly fewer minutes than Kim. Lobotka played a total of 1,731 minutes, or 69 minutes fewer than Kim. He also played the full 90 minutes in both of Slovakia's Nations League matches in September. The only match he didn't start was against Lecce, but he replaced Ndombele at halftime, so he still played 45 minutes in that match. And then he's had a handful of matches where he's been subbed off in the final 10 minutes or so, and it's typically when Napoli had a pretty healthy lead. 3-0 against Rangers, 3-0 against Monza, 4-0 against Sassuolo, and he was taken off against Liverpool in what was basically a meaningless match. Now I think we're going to have to find an alternative to Lobotka or I fear we are going to burn him out. Curiously, that alternative may not be Diego Deme. First, though I believed Cristiano Giuntoli when he said that Napoli won't make any changes in January, if there is one player that I could see us selling, it is Diego Deme. He's barely played so I don't think he would mind joining another club, and of course there was the incident when Deme publicly called out a teammate for injuring him during training, and we all believe that teammate to be Angisa. Even though they seem to have hashed that out, we know that De Laurentiis has no problem getting rid of players who create drama in the locker room. But Spalletti has hinted at the possibility that Gianluca Gaetano could play in that position, so I'm curious to see if Spalletti works Gaetano into the lineup a little bit more regularly. The third player we've been heavily reliant is Andre Frank Zambuangisa, who's remarkably played the fifth most minutes on the team despite missing a couple of games due to injury. If we exclude the return leg against Ajax in which he picked up that muscle injury and the Sassuolo match which was his first game back from injury, Angisa played the full 90 minutes in all but two matches. He played 85 minutes against Lecce, and he played 57 minutes against Spezia. Even that Sassuolo match, his first game back from injury, he was still thrown into the starting 11, and I imagine the only reason he was taken out in the 57th minute was because we were already up 3-0 at that point. Now, Angisa was curiously not called up to the Cameroon squad for the international break in September, so he was afforded a much needed rest, because at that point, he was even higher in the list in terms of minutes played. Now, four other players have played over a thousand minutes, Kvaratelia, Zielinski, Mario Rui, and Victor Osimen. Had Kavada and Osimen not missed matches due to injury as well, I think they would both be up there with Kim, Lobotka, and Angisa in terms of minutes played. Spalletti was very reluctant to rotate for Cavada, at least in terms of the starting lineup, though he did regularly substitute him between the 60th and 70th minute, especially early in the season. But I think this recent spell of matches without Cavada was very important in that it demonstrated that we can win matches without him, including against the top club like Atalanta. I'm not terribly concerned about Mario Rui because... He had to play more regularly early in the season while Matthias Oliveira got up to speed. I fully expect them to share responsibilities for the balance of the season, as we've seen since late October. And then with Osimen, we haven't rotated him much since he returned from injury, but we certainly have options with Simeone and Raspadori. 
That's a difficult one in that you want to keep rolling with the hot hand. I mentioned Osimhen's stats in part one, but at the same time, you want to keep Raspadori and Simeone in form. Who knows, they may already be out of form. Simeone played only 19 minutes over the four matches that we played in November. Raspadori played slightly more because he started against Empoli, but he still only played 67 minutes in November. So that will be another challenge for Spalletti. He'll need to figure out how to keep these guys playing so that when they are called upon, they are already in form. But all of that was to demonstrate that I think we did get a little bit tired as we approached the World Cup break. While it's great that we continue to get wins, I think our recent results demonstrated that. We beat Atalanta by one goal after conceding first and we didn't score in the second half. We beat Empoli 2-0, but it was a struggle and we needed what I would say was a pretty soft penalty decision to break the match open before Zielinski scored late to double our lead. And then in the match against Udinese, we had a healthy lead, but lost the second half and made our lives more difficult by conceding those two late goals. And that's why I'm perfectly fine with this World Cup break, because it will give us a chance to recharge our batteries. Between this season and last season, we've seen how good Spalletti's teams are at starting the season, and January will be like the start of a new season. We're even going on retreat like we do in the summer. There haven't been any official confirmations from the club, but there have been many reports about a retreat in Antalya, Turkey. According to La Repubblica, the retreat will be for two weeks from November 28th to December 12th, and we could play a couple of friendlies during the retreat and after the retreat when the club returns to Napoli. Now, I know people are concerned about Napoli losing their momentum, but bear in mind, our direct rivals have been heating up lately, so they will lose their momentum as well. Besides Napoli, Juve are the most informed team in Serie A with six consecutive victories. Granted, four of those victories were against Torino, Lecce, Empoli, and Hellas Verona, but they did beat Inter and Lazio during that run. Yes, Inter were far better in the first half of that match, and Lazio were missing Ciro Immobile and Matias Zaccani, not to mention a couple of weak goals conceded by even Provadel. But either way, Juventini will not be too thrilled about the season pausing for two months after they've seen their best spell of form, which launched them up to third in the table. Inter lost that match to Juve, but that was their only loss in their last seven, and they won the other six. They responded really well after that loss, beating Bologna and Atalanta by a combined score of 9-3. Inter have been a funny team this season. They've already lost 5 matches, but they haven't drawn any. In the era of 3-point wins, only 2 teams have lost more than 5 matches and still won the Scudetto, Juventus in 2019-20 and Inter in 05-06. That record actually goes even further back than that, but prior to the 93-94 season, there was less incentive to play for a win, or to put it another way, not winning a match wasn't as costly as it is today. We still have to play Inter twice, including our first match after the World Cup break, so if we win that match, we could seriously damage any hopes Inter have left of winning the Scudetto. Of the big four, Milan probably benefit the most from the World Cup break. They've just barely managed to get results lately. In their last six, they've lost to Torino and drawn Cremonese, 
and they had to score late in three of those four wins. Sandro Tonali scored in the 81st minute to beat Hellas Verona, Olivier Giroud scored in stoppage time to beat Spezia, and they needed a stoppage time own goal and some questionable officiating decisions to beat Fiorentina. And I think a big reason for their recent struggles is because they have also looked pretty tired. On top of that, they've had a couple of players injured who they will likely get back after the World Cup, including Mike Magnon and Davide Calabria, who are both regular starters. They've also been playing without Matteo Gabbia, Alessandro Florenzi, and Alexis Salamakers, who may not be regular starters, but they're important depth options since Milan also advanced to the knockout stage of the Champions League. Now Lazio are technically the 4th place team, they're tied with Inter on 30 points, but Lazio have the better goal differential and they have the head to head advantage after beating Inter, but with all due respect to Lazio, I just don't think that they have the squad depth to stay competitive, even if they tank in the conference league. Now people always say that Spalletti's teams tend to regress in December, so hopefully this means we won't have a regression because we won't be playing in December, and like I said, January will be like a new start. The other thing I wanted to quickly comment on is the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer kit that was worn by the kids accompanying the Udinese players at the start of the match. These kits seem to offend a lot of people for some reason. I'll be honest, when I first saw them, I thought they were super tacky, I did not like them. But we quickly learned that they were just replica Christmas shirts made for kids, so I asked my 6 year old son what he thought of them and he absolutely loves them. That changed my perspective on these shirts quite a bit. At the end of the day, if the kids like them, who am I to complain? The other key for me is that we won't see these shirts on the pitch because we don't have any matches before Christmas. So at the end of the day, this is just merch and I have absolutely no problem with that. Clubs sell all kinds of stuff to generate revenue. I don't fault them for that, it just so happens that they are kits. For 45 euros, you get the shirt with Rudolph and the matching shorts. I actually think that's a little steep considering that they are replica kits, which means the quality is rather low. What bothered me more about this whole situation was all the accounts that were reporting about this new leaked Napoli kit. This kit was not leaked, it's not like someone within the club sent a private email to someone and it blew up and went all over social media. We literally sent these kids out onto the pitch wearing these kids, so that was advertising, they were not leaked. Now as I said, we could have a couple of friendly matches before Christmas, so I wouldn't rule out the possibility of wearing Christmas kits for those matches, but I suspect if they do that, they will release an adult Christmas kit that's a bit more classy and a bit more appropriate for adults. Okay, I'll close the pod with a quick update on the international break. Five Napoli players were called up to their respective countries for the World Cup, all of which were expected. Kim Min-jae was confirmed by South Korea, Matthias Oliveira was confirmed by Uruguay, Andrei Frank Zamboangisa was confirmed by Cameroon, Piotr Zielinski was confirmed by Poland, and Chucky Lozano was confirmed by Mexico. We had three players who had a chance to get into their national team squads, but didn't. Mario Rui was left out of the Portugal squad, Giovanni Simeone was left out of the Argentina squad, and Tanguy Ndombele was left out of the France squad. Now, Ndombele was a long shot to replace Paul Pogba, so his omission didn't come as a huge surprise, but I was surprised that Mario Rui and Giovanni Simeone were left out. 
I don't know much about Rafael Guerrero, but judging by Mario Rui's play over the last season and a half, I feel like he was deserving of a call-up. He's 31 years old now, so this was likely his last opportunity to play in a World Cup. He was part of the Portugal team for Russia 2018, but he never featured, so I do feel bad for Mario Rui. And I feel bad for Cholito as well. I really cannot comprehend how a player like Joaquin Correa gets into that squad ahead of Simeone. Other than 2020-21, Simeone has consistently scored double-digit goals, and he's done it for some pretty weak squads, including a very weak Fiorentina side, Cagliari, and Hellas Verona. Last season, he scored 17 goals for Hellas Verona, and even though he's not a regular starter for Napoli, he seems to score every time he gets a chance to play. He has 6 goals in 345 minutes played, which is a goal every 65 minutes. Meanwhile, Correa is also a bench player at Inter, and his production has been far worse playing for much better teams. His best season was in 2020-21, where he scored 11 goals and added 6 assists in all competitions, but otherwise, he hasn't delivered, and he's often been injured. Now, I know as a Napoli fan, it's probably a good thing that they're not at the World Cup, because that means they're less likely to get hurt, but I think both of those guys deserve to be there. Now you can find the full schedule of all World Cup matches involving Napoli players on our website ForzaNapoliPress.com but I'll give you a couple of fun matches to look out for. On November 22nd Mexico play against Poland so we'll see Lozano against Zielinski in Group C action and on November 24th South Korea play against Uruguay so we'll see Kim Min Jae against Matthias Oliveira in Group H. And, in addition to the World Cup, 9 Napoli players were called up by their national teams for international friendlies. I actually find that to be much more frustrating than Christmas kits. With how busy the schedule has been over the last few seasons, I think this week of international friendlies right before the World Cup is entirely unnecessary. Fortunately, 2 of the players who were initially called up will not be playing for their countries, Cavada will not play in Georgia's friendly against Morocco due to the back injury he's been dealing with, and Victor Osimen will not play in Nigeria's friendly match against Portugal. The official report was that Victor pulled out due to injury, but I suspect he's not playing because he himself, let alone the club, don't want to risk injury. The other players who were called up were Alex Meret, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, Matteo Politano, and Giacomo Raspadori for Italy, Leo Ostegard for Norway, Stanislav Lobotka for Slovakia, and Elif Elmas for North Macedonia. They will all play in two friendlies, and you can find the full schedule for those matches at Forza Napoli Press as well. So that is where we'll leave it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps to get additional listeners to the pod. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. I will be back with another episode soon. I may slow down a little bit during the World Cup, but I will not be stopping. I'm currently working on an episode to provide an update on the Primavera and Femenile teams since I haven't been able to cover those teams as much on the podcast as I have on the website, and I've got a couple of episodes of Forza Napoli Worldwide lined up, so stay tuned for them. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre!
Social Podcast Network.